You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, well, welcome to week two of Reshape, how Jesus reshapes all of reality. And uh, we are going to have lots of fun today. Um, I want to just point out, for those of you who uh, are using the Facebook um, on Facebook, I have started a reshape group. And so it's an opportunity, and anybody can join, and so it's an opportunity to have a conversation, if you want, about many of the themes that come up in this class. So if you're on Facebook, you can just join the, the reshape uh, group, and uh, it's just a way to have uh, further conversation. Uh, the other thing is that I just want to be sensitive to um, our friends online, and so I know that sometimes we, um, when when somebody has a comment, you guys have a hard time hearing the comments, but that's okay. I still want to hear your comments. But my my challenge to you will be to be brief, okay? Because if you go for about five minutes, there you have five minutes of silence or trying to figure out what's going on. So. Yeah, just try to be brief. Uh, I might have you guys talk among each other. If you feel comfortable doing that, we'll, we'll do that. If not, then that's okay as well. So does that make sense? Okay. Um, let me uh, pray and we'll dive right in. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your kindness. And uh, we thank you for so many gifts and gifts that we didn't even see at the time. Uh, we pray that you would guide our conversations tonight, that this would not just be academic stuff, but this would be about life and about seeing you in all of reality. That is our desire, is to see you and to know you in a deeper and deeper way. So to that end, we commit this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, now briefly, <laughs> you were all culture-watching last week. You were all exegeting popular culture, right? That was your homework. And like good students, I'm sure you did that. Um, those of you who are online, you can just maybe uh, put it on the chat bar, what you noticed. That would be good. And anybody here notice anything? Watch anything and say, hey, I bet you that it's this worldview being presented in this particular thing. Did anybody come across anything this past week? Anyone? I bet some of you did, but you're not <laughs> sharing it. And that's a problem because usually I'd have you break into small groups, but with these pandemics, it's a little awkward um, to, to do that. Oh, okay. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> SFU's motto is you were made for this. You were made for this. Very good. It reminds me of the Vancouver Canucks motto, uh, which is what? We're all Canucks. And during the playoffs, what else? That's right. You actually have to think back a long time to remember this. I, I recognize that. But when the Canucks made the playoffs back in the 70s, I believe the banners said in the corner of Rogers Arena, these big banners that says, this is what we live for. This is what we live for, which is, there's a hidden worldview there, that's for sure. We like hockey, but is this really what we live for? 
Anything else? Body shop. Oh, the body shop ad that is entitled self-love. Oh, very good. Oh, the trucker's convoy. There's a whole conversation in itself. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I want to encourage you to do is to exegete, is to interpret what you see either on the news or on TV or on, uh, on, on Netflix or whatever it happens to be, because there's all these hidden assumptions about the nature of reality that is buried within them. And the challenge is, is that we are mostly blind to these, and these shape us unknowingly. And so part of our challenge, I, I've shared this one story before, but I do remember going to a movie theater with my kids, and I've, I've shared this, uh, where they were showing a Converse shoe commercial at the beginning. You know Converse shoes? Apparently they're very hip and groovy to wear. Um, so Converse shoes in this ad, everybody was wearing different colored Converse shoes and they're dancing or they're in the bathroom or they're on the beach or whatever. Everybody's wearing Converse shoes, different kind of shoes, and all you see is the feet. And then at the very end, you have this line that says, Converse shoes, be different. And I spoke up in the theater, much to my kids embarrassment but I, I I spoke up I couldn't help it and I just said yes Converse shoes I said everybody buy the same damn pair of shoes and my kids are like dad I'm like well that's what because they're saying like be different be different Mike you can buy red shoes Al you can buy yellow shoes that's the, make sure they're Converse shoes but be different well be different you're wanting everybody to buy the same thing how is that different? So this assumption that this is diversity, this is difference, where in fact what you're encouraging is sameness. Right? So, you gotta, so to expose those things is actually a lot of fun. It really is. Um, maybe be more discreet than me in, in the movie theater. Um, we are exploring in this class how the reality of Jesus reshapes everything we see in the world. And the challenge for us, as we talked about last week, is to know the story of all stories and to see how it stands in contrast with the thousands of other stories that are floating around our world. And so we are looking in this class at worldviews. What is a worldview? You'll see in your notes, a worldview is an articulation of basic beliefs embedded in a shared grand story, right? Or worldview has to do with the most basic, comprehensive, foundation, religious beliefs that we have about the world as they are embodied in a story. And that's the thing. Nobody thinks themselves into a worldview. We usually experience our way into a worldview. We're surrounded by all these different stories, and we adopt some, we reject some, and they shape our lives. And so the common theme in all this is story. Stories really matter. So let me ask you this question. This is an easy question. If you were to tell a story of your life, right, the story of Sue, right, the, your story, the story of Norm, if you were to tell the, your story, the story of Rish, I can see you there, um, how would you tell that story? If you were to describe where you are in life, how would you do it? Through age. Through age, usually. 
And so the, you know, the older you are, the assumption may be that you're further on in life, right? You're hitting, hitting the final chapters of the story. Yeah, but then the story goes onwards, right, in Jesus. Um, it's, it's actually hard to do. It's hard to tell the story of your life because, honestly, we don't know where we are in the story, in our own stories, do we? We have a rough idea. The older we get, we think, well, okay, there's not many chapters left, maybe. But it's an incomplete. It, it, it's hard. It's hard to know. Where are we in our story? Because we don't know how long, how many days we have, right? I had a friend of mine pass away over Christmas, and he was quite young. And, you know, I look at my own story, I can pretty much guarantee you, it, I'm probably over halfway through the story, unless I live to 112. Um, but I don't know. I could be at the end of my story. I could be 60% of the way through the story. I don't know. Some of you are just starting out in your story. And so when we look at our lives, it's, it's, it's hard to understand where we are at. And if you think about your life, you'd have to recognize that there's a mystery to the beginning of your story. Because honestly, it's hard to remember where, what happened when we were just born, right? Um, I find that many of my memories of my childhood, of when I was quite little, are probably not memories. They're probably things that people have told me. Or my grandmother was one of those people who very early on had a movie camera or had a video camera. Uh, and so she, I have video footage of me coming home from the hospital as a baby. Uh, and so she, she chronicled everything. There's no sound. It's just, just there's color though. It's not black and white, just, just you know. Um, but so half the time I'm thinking, is this a memory from my childhood or is this something that I saw in, my, in our home videos? It's hard to know. Um, much of what we remember about our stories is fragmented, disconnected, dependent on other people's testimony. Our, our, our childhood is hard to get our heads around. And so there's a mystery of our younger days, but there's also a mystery at the end of our story. Like if you look at your life, where is your life heading? Look at some of the habits you have picked up in your life, some of the things that you do that maybe you don't want to be doing. What is the trajectory of your life if it keeps going the way it's going? I remember a, uh, a gym teacher of mine when I was 12 saying to me, he said, uh, I went by my middle name, Todd. He says, Todd, he goes, you're going to have to make a decision what you're going to do in life because the way you're heading is not going to end well. I'm so thankful. I don't even know what his name was. But what he said really, really shook me up. <laughs> I'm like, I'm 12 years old. What do you mean? What but I was making decisions that were not good. But there's a mystery. How are things going to work out in the long run? And then there's, there's wrinkles along the way. We look at the trajectory of our lives and, and there's wrinkles because how many people saw COVID coming? And how has COVID shaped your life? 
for the better or for the worse. Deborah, last week, was sharing with us as a staff, talking about um, Corey Tenboom and her sister, thanking God for the fleas in the, in the prison in, in Nazi Germany. And they thank God for the fleas. And Corey originally is like, why? How can we thank God for fleas? But they thank God for the fleas because they kept the German soldiers away and allowed them to have Bible study. I think about COVID. I never saw COVID coming. If you remember Ray, what I said to Ray, I said, Ray, this will be over in two weeks. Don't worry. Come on. And <laughs> I was wrong. But I also know that because of COVID, I never saw this coming. I've been able to... Um, probably expand the reach in my classes by about 40% because of, because of Zoom, which I'd never heard of. I'd never heard of Zoom beforehand, right? So nobody knows how the future's gonna play out. Um, our life is brief. This past year, I've had very, uh, four very close friends die. And uh, two of them were my age. So we don't know, we don't know. How many days we have. And so the past and the future are mysteries, and so we're stuck in the middle of our story. And because we're stuck in the middle of the story, it's hard to really know where we're at. And we long for what the psalmist teaches us, to be brought into a spacious place. We, 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 we long to get a sense of where we're at in life. One of my... Uh, favorite songs of all time and John you'll know this song and David you'll some of you guys will know this song um, is by this uh, band named Rush and my favorite song by Rush is uh, called Time Stands Still and it, it's it was written by the the drummer a guy named Neil Peart who died last year but he writes it in his middle age when he's probably in his mid 40s and the song is called Time Stands Still saying it's not like I want to go back and go back to my childhood. I just want things to slow down so I get a sense of what's going on around me. Because everything's changing. And I think there's, there's a longing for that. I have that longing. So where are we at in our stories? Well, part of our danger, part of our concern is that we're told in our culture that there is no big story that, make, that will help you make sense of life. That all you have is these little stories that can, in life. And that is the influence of what is called post-modernity. Post-modernity, which we'll talk about more in the weeks to come, tells you that there's no overarching story to life. That all you're stuck with is these bunch of disconnected stories. That's all there is. There's no grand purpose to your life. You just, you just live the now, right? You just do you. And you've seen this in, in how many movies. That it doesn't matter the destination, but what matters is the journey. Right? You've heard that. And our world today is very highly suspicious of, of, of story, of big stories that shape our lives. Put it, let me put it differently. They're suspicious of what are called meta-narrative. Think of meta as above, it's narrative, story. So a story that kind of explains everything. Our world is very, very leery of meta-narratives. Why? Because they say meta-narratives have caused so many problems in, in the history of humanity. Think about Marxism, think about communism, think about you know, the Crusades, or think about all these overall stories that led to all sorts of horrible things. 
And so in our world today, they say there is no overarching story that explains reality. We need to come to the realization that all we have is just the meaning that we can kind of stick into our lives. And think about how many movies have that as a theme. How many Disney movies in particular have that theme? It's like, hey man, it doesn't matter what life is all about. You just got to make the most out of the journey that you're on, recognizing that in the end, that's all there is. Almost every story, every show that I watch, that's the philosophy. There is no meaning to life. There's, there's just what you make of it. Right? And that sounds noble, but it's pretty hard to live our lives without a larger story. I don't think we're wired to live our lives without a larger story. And so here's a challenge, though. If there is no overarching story to hold our lives together, to hold reality together, if all we're left with is micro-stories, then there can be consequences to how we live our lives. If there's no overarching story, what are the consequences? Let me ask you that. If there is no overarching story that shapes your life, what are some of the implications to that? It's I can do whatever I want. Did somebody say something? Yeah, I said I can do whatever I want. I can do whatever I want. Yeah? Yeah? I can do whatever I want because it really doesn't matter. Right? No accountability yet, Joseph, you've put it. Okay, truth becomes malleable. So, what do you unpack that a little bit? What do you mean by that? Like, even belief in stuff like science is according to a meta narrative that we all fit to the world. And so, if they give them any overarching truth, if it's your truth, then there's no truth. Your your narrative, your personal narrative is what you want to live by. Right. So, all you're left with, yes. So, that's an important point because if there is no overarching story, then all you're left with is private truth. This is true to me. It may not be true to you, but it's true to me. Right? Which all sounds very good until something bad goes, happens. When something horrible happens. And then all of a sudden I'm like, well, no, no, this is wrong. Well, wait, 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 wait. There is, don't be talking to me about wrong. It may be wrong to you, but who knows if it's wrong. There is no overarching truth there is no overarching meaning yeah if if there is no overarching meaning to life and if all we have is just what i can make of things and so i have my sense of what is right and what is wrong but i'm not going to pose it upon you this is just my personal view and all we have are personal views, just this is what makes sense to me. There's no overarching idea of what is right and what is wrong. It's just this is right to me. Then when something, when something bad happens in our culture, how do you address it? Let me give you an example. I, I, this is a real example that I had with a, a fellow who was a, a Japanese student um, who was living in Coquitlam. And he was at Douglas College. About 20 years ago, I had this conversation with him. And we're talking about, is there such a thing as goodness, good and evil? And he's like, no, there is no such thing as good and evil. It may be good to you, 
It may be evil to you, but it's just personal opinion. There's no, there's no overarching goodness, or there's no overarching evil that you can say is evil for everyone. It's just personal opinion. I said, oh, I said, hang on. Let's cut to the chase. I said, if I took a baby and I put the baby on this table, and if I took a knife and I killed this baby right in front of you, I said, would you not say that that was morally wrong? Not just to you, but just wrong. And I still get chills when I think about it because I looked at him and he looked at me and he says, I cannot say that it would be wrong across the board. He goes, it would be wrong to me, but I cannot say that it, it's completely wrong for everyone. And I thought, oh man, oh man, that, that's a bit scary. Because what happens is well, all we have is personal opinion. When there, are something, when there are some things that are really concerning, we can't speak to them. Because all we're left with, all we have is personal, yeah, it may be wrong to me, but I'm not going to impose that upon you. And that's a very dangerous place to be in. Stories matter. These, these truths matter because they give us context about decisions we make in our life. And, but then, then the question becomes, which story is true? There's lots of stories out there. Which story is true? Well, a true story, we believe that a, 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 a true story will give us an idea where we came from, where we're heading, and where we're at. And I believe that this is what the biblical story offers us. The biblical story offers us where we've come from, where we're at, and where we're going. And there's lots of stories that, that offer us that, but I think the biblical story is a true story. It's a true story. And we're going to unpack that a little bit. We're going to look at uh, what the biblical story says. And we're going to begin at the beginning, because it makes sense. Oh, by the way, I should point out, I've revised our schedule, and, and I told Jonathan it's the last time. It may not be, but I hope it's the last time, because uh, Jonathan keeps adjusting the notes. But one of the things I plan to do, I was going to speak on um, creation tonight, and then I was going to talk about Israel, and then I was going to talk about Jesus. I'm actually going to incorporate Israel into next week, into the, when we talk about Jesus, which actually makes sense. And I've added a week, and the, and, and the week that I added is a week where we explore what does our Christian faith have to say about politics? What could go wrong? I mean, it, it's probably pretty straightforward. But, yeah, I will record that one. Yeah, that one's okay. I think that's... that's that. But I think it's, it's one that Christians, we need to get our head around. What does the Lordship of Jesus Christ say to how I understand city council, right? We have Maxine, a former mayor, with us uh, tonight. And yeah, so what does my life in Christ have to say about being a mayor in Coquitlam? Right? Yeah. So these are things that we're, we're going to be talking about. Okay, so tonight we're going to start at the beginning. Uh, we're going to look at the creation and the fall. And... Creation of the fall helps us address three big questions. Who am I? Is that not one of the most important questions people are asking today? Who am I? What does it mean to be me? Where have I come from and where am I going? And the biblical story teaches us a lot. 
uh, especially about our beginnings. In Scripture, we turn to the book of Genesis, and the book of Genesis teaches us a number of things. One, it teaches us who created the world. Secondly, it teaches us why God created the world and humanity. And thirdly, what were his purposes? What are his purposes for both, for humanity and for this world? But notice this, and you may push back on this, and we can talk about this afterwards. Um, the book of Genesis does not teach us how the world was made. I don't think the book of Genesis offers us anything in terms of how the world was made. And uh, yeah, some of you have different views on that. Some of you are old earth, young earth. I'm more like the hobbits. I'm more middle earth. Um, sorry. Is that a funny joke to my friends online? No. <laughs> I didn't get any laughs out here, so maybe... They... Okay, very funny. Thanks, Kevin. <laughs> so Genesis teaches us about creation, but it also teaches us about the fall. And part of our journey tonight is to realize how the biblical understanding of creation has huge implications to how we see reality, more than maybe you realize, um, and how we view our own role in the midst of creation. So, what does the doctrine of creation have to say about things like our identity, our sexuality, how we treat the planet, genetics, vaccines, Economic development, work, beauty, and the arts, it affects everything. And we begin with Genesis 1 and 2. And here we find a story, not just about us, but about the cosmos, about everything. And Genesis 1 and 2 answers a really important question. And it's a question that we don't often ask, but it's a really important question. Why is there something instead of nothing? You're thinking about that? Why is there something instead of nothing? Why, why is there anything in this world? Why is there anything in the cosmos? Why is there something instead of nothing? There's no reason why there should be something. Well, Genesis tells us the story about life, the universe, and everything. So what does it teach us? Okay, a number of things. One, Genesis teaches us that the world that we live in is not eternal. Okay, the world's not eternal. Genesis says the cosmos had a beginning point. It, it, it was a creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So there's a beginning. Now let me just ask you this. Can you think of a worldview that this idea that creation has a beginning stands in opposition to? It's in agreement with evolution. It's, yeah, in, in terms of the Big Bang Theory. No, but I mean, it started with the darkness and evolved in God's plan. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, he separated the night from the day. Yeah, yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's lots of questions about that. I was saying to Ray uh, earlier that um, 
one of the classes I teach, and maybe I'll offer it for PLVC credit as well, is I teach on, on um, the Bible and science. And in fact, I'm teaching that class at PLVC in May, and maybe I'll run it as a class here. You guys can get credit again. Um, the question is this idea that the creation has a starting point. Does that bump up against any other viewpoints in our world today? That's good. Yeah, Buddhism would be, a, and, 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 good, yeah, excellent. Yeah, that's really good, Betty. Yeah, um, in, in Hinduism, and of course, in, and, and, and in Buddhism, um, there is this, there is this sense of eternality, right? That everything begins, and everything will return to what is, to what is called Brahman, right? Uh, there's a oneness of the universe, um, and it's this unchanging context in, in which everything is, and Brahman is impersonal, and the universe evolves out of this oneness, and human beings in their true selves are formless and will return back to the oneness. And this, this philosophy is called monism. You, you, Buddhism follows that, Jainism would follow that to a certain degree. But even in the West, a guy like Aristotle, uh, Aristotle would, um, would claim that the universe was eternal. Matter and motion are eternal. And in fact, this idea that the universe was eternal, that, that always has always been around, was the view that most scientists held until the 20th century. Most scientists held that the, the, the universe was eternal, and then when the idea of the Big Bang theory uh, came up, not, not the show, uh, but the, uh, you know, the idea of the, of the Big Bang, a lot of scientists, a lot of scientists pushed back against that, primarily because it sounded too biblical. There was a real pushback against it. But the biblical story tells us that there was a point where the world began, and there's a point where the world will end. History has a beginning and an end. And so we find ourselves in the middle of the story. Where are we in the story of the world? Are we at the beginning? Are we at the middle? Are we really close to the end? Well, that's where guys like Tim LaHaye, can, no, that's, so Tim, Tim LaHaye is an end times guy who always predicts when Jesus is going to return. Just kidding. Um, we don't know when the world's going to end. There's a lot of people who will try to guess it, but we don't know, right? So the world is not eternal. Secondly, the world was created by a person. This story has an author. We call him God. He's revealed himself in Scripture as I am who I am, Yahweh. God created the heavens and the earth, and he's personal. And so he's, and he's personal, so he's not like... He's not an impersonal, unmoved mover. He's not a theorem behind all reality. He is personal. He is, and God decided to create the heavens and the earth at a particular point in time. Let there be light. The other thing we know from, from, from the book of Genesis is that creation is ordered and not chaotic. There is order in the cosmos. There's order in this planet of ours. 
Um, this world that we live in is knowable. The world is intelligible because there's an intelligence behind the world. Now we just take that for granted, but do you realize there's a reason why science developed in the West and not in the East? Why does science take off in the West? Well, I think largely because of its understanding of who God is. That God is intelligent and he made the world intelligible. And the other thing is that the world is not God. God is separated from the world. And that is why science... And, and, and because God is intelligent and he makes the world intelligible, when we look at something, we can understand it. Right? We don't have to worry about there being you know, a God inside that chair. When I, ex when I explore that chair, I don't have to worry that the chair is going to suddenly jump up and, uh, and fight back against me. It's just a chair. It's a thing. And it's knowable. It's intelligible. If I use my intelligence and my reason, it can make sense. That's where science emerges in the West. Because there's a separation between God and his creation. And the world is knowable. Now, it's interesting because in the beginning of the book of Genesis, uh, we, we come across something else. So we do come across chaos right at the beginning. Do you guys know that? Somebody read for me uh, Genesis 1. Did you got a Bible? Somebody got a Bible? You probably got it memorized. Gene, I see you have your, you have uh, Genesis there? Yeah. Can you read the first couple of verses? Just first two verses. Right, and then God spoke. Yeah, 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 read the next one. Yeah. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Very good. Okay, that's good. So what we find at the beginning is in, in, in Hebrew, is this word tohu wabohu, which actually means, it's kind of a nonsense word, which means like higgly jiggly. It's just kind of chaos, right? That's what we find. It, the earth was formless, it was inhospitable, it was dangerous, it was empty of life, it's only darkness, and then God spoke, and everything becomes ordered. There's chaos, God speaks, and there's order. So God, through his word, brings order out of chaos. That'll preach. I talked to this one person who was a custodian once. And I asked him, what do you do? He goes, ah, he goes, I'm just, just a custodian. So I said, well, tell me about your job. He goes, well, no, I clean up this and I clean up this. And, you know, this place is usually left in a mess and I have to tidy it all up and I sort it out and get it ready for the next group. And I said to him, I said, do you realize that you're participating in God's very character? And he's like, what? He goes, I'm a custodian. I said, no, I said, God is in the business of bringing order out of chaos. You do that every day. And when you bring order out of chaos, you're, 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 you're mirroring the very character of God. And, and that really resonated with him because he had never seen his work in that sense. Some of you are accountants or you, you bring order out of chaos, right? So creation, we do read, is taking place. Um, it does take place over six days. 
Now, I do think the six days are theological. Um, the first three days, what were, were, was being described is, the, is form, and the second set of three days is the filling of the form. Now, we, we don't have time to go into this uh, tonight, but maybe this is something if you have a question, you can join my Facebook group, push back. Um, but I do think that's, I think the way Genesis is laid out is not describing how the world is made scientifically or anything like that, because the book of Genesis is pre-scientific. But what is being communicated are theological truths about God forming and filling, which I think is actually a great model for discipleship. We are formed and we are also filled. So God forms us through spiritual disciplines and practices, but we also need to be filled with God's truth. So through this, God makes the world habitable. And so this perspective stands in contrast to people who say the world is just meaningless, it's random, it's chaos. I always think about it. You remember the movie Apocalypse? Anybody remember the movie Apocalypse now? Or is that too old? Yeah? Uh, there's a great line where it's just, it's just chaos. And the main character comes up to one of the soldiers. It's in the Vietnam War, right? And he says, do you know who's in charge here? And the guy goes, yeah. And he walks away. <laughs> uh, it's just, you know, some people just look at the world as just completely chaotic, having no order. A lot of people will say the world has no intrinsic meaning, but it's only the meaning that you instill. But the Christian worldview says no, that there's meaning in the very fabric of reality. And so we don't need to create meaning, we just need to align our lives to the meaning that God has given us. It's a big difference. There's a big difference. There's a big difference between trying to create our own meaning or discovering the meaning that God has placed within the cosmos and aligning our lives with it. There's two words to describe that. If you're interested, they're, they're kind of geeky words, but they're really interesting words. One is a word called mimesis. And the word mimesis is this idea that there's a given order and a given meaning to reality and we need to align our lives to it. The other word is poesis, which is the world is raw material and we can form it into whatever shape we want it to be. Anyhow. Any, uh, any questions so far? I've been going, as they, if we weren't in a COVID time, I'd have you guys doing lots of breakout groups. So it'd be a lot more conversation. Some of you might, introverts are like, I'm so glad we have COVID. Um, <laughs> any questions, comments so far? You guys online? You can just type it in the chat because I might not be able to hear you. You tracking with me so far? Yeah? Oh, yeah. Well, you're reading ahead in the notes. I'm getting there. I'm getting there, Jane. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. I'm yeah, no, I mean, once we get to ourselves and our mandates, it's very important, and then it comes out of, out of Genesis 1. No, absolutely right. This is key. But we're getting there. We will get there. Yeah. When I was studying evolutionary, the chaos of the dark, darkness, this final act of creation, that Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where I see it's 
really a good argument against evolution versus uh, uh, Christianity. Because what he did was definitely evolutionary. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of debate. And again, if, we, uh, if you take uh, my class on science and, and faith, there's, there's certain issues um, that arise, some theological questions arise through different ways of understanding how the world came to be, one of which would be evolution. And even when you use the word evolution, there's different meanings to evolution as well. And so we need to be able to, to, to point out what we mean by that. Yeah, yeah. And so I think the idea of a blind by chance, we kind of evolved here through blind chance. I don't think there's room within scripture for that. And so is it intelligent design? Is it, uh, who knows? So, but those are really good questions, are really important questions in terms of the how. But the how is kind of outside of our, 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 our wheelhouse tonight. Um, the other thing about creation is that creation, and I said this earlier, but creation is not God. Creation is not God. Creation is separate from God. Creation is not divine. Now, this stands in contrast to a lot of worldviews that says, you know, you know, talks about Mother Earth and, and Earth as, as, as in, in, in the language of, of, of divinity. There is that, uh, that talk. In the ancient Near East, there's this idea that there's a continuity between the gods and the world, that the world was worshipped, was divine, the sun and the moon were worshipped as gods. Uh, storm clouds were gods. Ancient cosmology, everything had the supernatural in it. You looked at a tree, you got a dryad, you look at rivers, you got naiads, you got everything, right? And these gods were managers of the cosmos. And it also, the biblical view stands in, in, against, you know, pantheistic religions which find divinity in matter. Uh, and again, this has a huge impact on science or the lack of science, right? Christian worldview says the earth is sacred, but not divine. This is important. The word of God went out from God, uh, the word of God went out, and creation happens outside of God, not inside of him. So sun and the moon uh, are not gods. They're not gods. Now, just because the world is not divine does not mean it is worthless. It is sacred. God created the world, and after he created it, what did he say? It is, it is good. Yeah, it is good. And it is fascinating, because when you read the story of, of um, creation in Genesis uh, 1 and 2, the language is interesting. Uh, and I've learned this in, in recent years, um, but the language is very intentional. The language of creation that we read about in Genesis is a language that would be used to describe the formation of a temple in the ancient Near East. It's quite interesting. And so what you have happening is, is, um, is, is in the ancient Near East, when you built a temple, inside the temple, the temple there'd be images within the temple that would reflect the cosmos. And the last thing that you would place within the temple would be what? Does anybody know? The altar. Yeah, the altar, but what goes onto it? In, in, in a pagan temple. 
the idol, the image of God. The image of God is the last thing that is placed inside the temple. Now, what's the last thing that's created in, in the Genesis account? The human beings, male and female, he made them in his likeness, in his image. And so the picture is that is not that of, it's, it's a temple imagery, but the temple is a cosmos, is a world. And it's interesting, the last thing God does on, on, on day seven, what does he do? He rests. Why does he rest? Because he's tired? He's finished. And, but the picture, the picture is a picture of the cosmos being created and then God taking up his place, running the cosmos, taking his seat, uh, the operator's chair to basically govern his creation. So it's, it's quite interesting language. So we're going to come back to that in a second. But according to the biblical perspective, creation is not to be worshipped. It's sacred, not divine. There's a separation between God and the world. Um, and biblical faith sees creation as impersonal. But God is personal. And so this picture of, of creation has huge implications and it really does bump up against a lot of how people see the world today. Um, especially how people look at the world. I mean, there's a guy named Peter Singer who's a philosopher in the States, in the East, I believe. He's a moral philosopher. But he makes the case that if you're driving a car, so Al, you're driving a car, and the car starts to swerve out of control. On your left is a woman with a baby. On the right are, is, a, is, a, is a mother duck and ducklings. Singer would say there's no difference between who you hit. Because both are part of creation, and they even say creation, both are alive, both are bio biological life. And so it's not necessarily better to run over the ducks than the woman, or, or running over the woman instead of the ducks. It makes no difference. Because life is life is life. There's no difference between humans and animals. It's all life. In the same way that, you know, a, 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 yeah, I mean, there's lots of things he says that are just... We are just really strange. But that's the implication. The implication is that in the Bible, human life has, has, has value. The, the, the crowning of creation is a creation of human beings. The philosophy that you see often in our world is that there's no difference between human life and animal life. It's the same. People and their pets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even how we treat. Yeah, people will place more value on on their pets than they will on friendship or a relationship with other human beings. Yeah. So there are implications, and there, we'll, we'll keep going. There's lots of implications that we're going to hit tonight. The other thing is, um, I bet Singer's Baby, if, if Singer's Baby was one of the choices, he would be singing a different tune. Yeah, that's a good point, Laurie. It's always good on, in, in theory, right? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, that was a good, 
That was a good pun. That singer would be singing a different tune. Very good. Yeah. The other thing that comes out of creation is, uh, is that creation is good. We are to look after creation. We're not, we don't worship it, but we look after it because part of our job, and this is your point, Gene, is that we are created to look after this world. We are to be good stewards over God's creation. And so creation that we look at is, is good. The Bible says the, the world is good. Stuff is good. And so the world is not some place that we need to escape from. And that's why sometimes Christian hymns, I'm not quite sure if theologically they make sense. Like there's that old hymn, and I don't want to ruin it for you, but you remember the hymn, I'll Fly Away. You know, I'll fly away, oh glory. Right? And it's this idea that, you know, how's it go? When I'm, when I'm done? When I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. Yeah. So, yeah, when I die, I'm out of here, right? But the Bible says our future is actually quite physical. It's resurrected bodies. We're not disembodied souls floating around. We'll talk about that more. So the world is not a place to escape. Um, but in, in, in different philosophies, not just in bad Christian theology, but in different philosophies, in particular Eastern philosophies, the world and its miseries are things to escape. Uh, in Eastern, um, in the Indian concept of samsara, reincarnation, points to the point that, that people will eventually escape their miseries living in this world. Our, our real self is not physical, but again, impersonal Brahman. Um, and so in a lot of Eastern religions, what do you do in the face of suffering? How do you deal with suffering? Does anybody know, anybody from, come from the Eastern background? How do you see suffering? Yeah, Phoebe. That's right. You detach from it because suffering is simply an illusion. And it's because you're too caught up in this world. And the goal is actually to detach yourself from these passions, from these things that, that, that pull you into this world. Um, the, the, the goal is to dispel the illusion of suffering, to get rid of desire, to get rid of selfish act, uh, action, and to seek knowledge and, and to gain the enlightenment to know what reality is truly like, right? Now, this is a problem because there's a story um, of a person named Isa. He was an 18th century poet from Japan. And through a succession of sad events, his wife and he had five children, they all died. And after each one died, he would go uh, to the Zen master. And he says, help me make sense of this. And the Zen master's response was always the same. He would say, remember, this world is just dew, like dew on the grass. Dew is transient and ephemeral. The sun rises and the day is gone. So too suffering and death in this world is an illusion. And it is a mistake to become too engaged with this world. Remember, 
that the world is due. Be more detached and transcend the engagement of mourning that prolongs the grief. Get over it, because it's all an illusion. And each time, Isa heard that, and he went back, and he was always unconsoled. And he writes one of his most famous poems, and the poem says, the world is due, the world is due, and yet, and yet, meaning that didn't comfort him. And I remember during 9-11, when uh, the you know, plane smashed into the World Trade Center, um, the Dalai Lama was asked, how do you deal with all this suffering? And I remember he had nothing to say. He had no, no lens through which to interpret suffering other than the denial of suffering. And so we have to realize that there are consequences to different worldviews. And I think one of the biggest strengths, and we're going to come back to this, one of the biggest strengths of the Christian worldview is this understanding of suffering. Especially in our world today, my goodness, the Christian view, interpretation, and, and theology of suffering um, is, is, is stands out. It stands out among everything. And so, now we need to know it. We need to understand the, the theology of suffering. But I think that's where Christianity can speak quite loudly in our world today, especially with so much suffering going on. The other thing about uh, in, in the uh, Christian worldview is that creation is not a problem. Creation is not the problem. We, we, we don't have to escape creation. God is a God who makes stuff, and stuff is okay. Stuff is good. <laughs> right? God is a God of, who makes stuff. The Greeks would, would say, you know, matter doesn't matter. But God says that matter matters. That our bodies matter. And because our bodies matter, we can't treat them like bulletin boards. We can't treat them as if they're disposable. We can't treat them as if they're malleable to however we want it to be. Our bodies matter. There's a givenness to our bodies. There's a huge implication in our culture in terms of how we see body. Right? I could go on on that, but we will touch on that when we talk about identity and sexuality because it has, it has, it has effects there. Yeah. The other thing about uh, the doctrine of creation, we'll, we'll just look at a couple more. One is, is that God is. That God exists. And, 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 and God creates the world. He creates the creation. Not because God was bored. Not because God was lonely. He doesn't need to create anything. But he does because that's his character. God is a God who can't help himself. He just creates. So God is a God of beauty. He's a God of self-giving. He does not need to do any of this. He just does it out of love we read. Now that's so different than so many other views about God, the gods. Uh, in the ancient Near East, the gods were the, gods were the masters and, and they created hum, human beings to be their slaves, <laughs> to basically feed them, right? 
uh, to give them some kind of benefit. It's a different view. The Christian worldview says God created humanity and he created us and he gives us an identity and a mission. God gives us an identity and a mission. So our identity answers the question, who am I? The mission answers the question, what am I supposed to do with life? Who am I? So how does the Bible answer who am I? What does the Bible say in creation story about who am I? What does it say? <laughs> you guys are still talking about uh, other things. Yeah, uh, having a great comment. God's image. Yes, that we are made in God's image. Very good. And so therefore we have dignity and value. So that's what it means, who am I? God created us. How did he create us? In his image. What else? In his likeness. What else? Yeah, no, that's good. That, uh, you know what? That's a really good question. A lot of ink has been spilled, and we'll talk about that. We've been created in his image, in his likeness. Male and, Male and female, he created us. Those are three things that are really important. What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? Okay. What we're supposed to do is connected to who we are. So before we talk about what we're supposed to do, let me just ask you this. Oh, to work, yes, yeah, we are called to work. If, if you are an atheist, if you are an atheist, uh, and somebody asks the question, who are you? What does it mean to be human? How would you answer that? You're a secular humanist, or what, what does it mean? Who, who am I? How would you answer that question? Animated blob of cells. So an animated, animated blob of cells. An animated blob of cells. <laughs> That's very good. Okay. Yeah, if you're a... If you're a yeah, if you're a materialist, uh, that, that's all you are. You're a, you're a bunch of firing neurons, right? Maybe the highest Very good. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, because if you're a secular humanist, you would say, well, no, there is something valuable about humans in the sense that we can communicate, um, we can write, we can think, we can use reason, we can do all sorts of things. So on the whole evolutionary hierarchy, we are the pinnacle. We are the highest. Good. Yeah. What's that? Yes. So we are our in, in, in gendered. Yeah. So however we, 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 we view ourselves. Okay. Uh, a product of time, chance, and matter, says Pete. Yeah. We have understanding and evolved being, stardust. Intelligence, human, very good, yeah, good. Okay, so there's different views, but from an atheist, you can come up with these different views about what it means to be human being. So that's who we are. Um, what are we supposed to do? 
from an atheist perspective, what are we supposed to do? What's that? Die with the most toys. Okay, yeah. Well, and then there's something to that. Yeah, you just get and you know, extract as much as you can out of life and die with the most toys. Okay. What's that? Be miserable, okay. Why? Why would you be miserable? Yeah. So just be miserable and... Because you don't have what the other guy has. Yeah, yeah. So if you really think about it, you're going to be miserable, yeah. One person said, eat, drink, and be merry. Enjoy life. Take whatever you can out of it before you vanish forever. Very good. Live for the moment. Okay, so you think about this. Preserve the world to preserve our species. Live for the moment. Maximize well-being and minimize suffering. Why, Kevin? Um, that's what, um, I can't think of his first name, Harris. Sam Harris says. Oh, that's what Sam Harris says. But, Harris. If, yeah, but why? No, 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 I, I agree. But I'm just saying he'll say that that's, he won't say things are good or bad, but you can make things sort of... Yeah, yeah. So that's what Sam Harris, who's, who's a fairly well-known secular humanist, um, would, would, would argue. Uh, the maximize well-being and minimize suffering. Which is interesting. He asks, okay, why? I, it's not a bad thing, but why? It's interesting. Preserve the world for our species. Live for the moment. There's no long-term purpose. How... That sounds a lot like a lot of the shows we watch, the themes that we come across in, in, on TV. And I think what we're seeing is we're living in the implications of a secular worldview. Because if, if there is no real purpose to life, then it's the purpose that you make of it. Or the only other thing I can think of and I see this quite often, is this idea that somehow as human beings we're all connected, we're all in this together, and what I do will affect human beings that come after me. Um, I watched this show, uh, I, I liked season one, then I got really bored. Um, have you guys ever watched the show This Is Us? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's well acted, it just goes on forever, because it's just This Is Us, it's just their whole life, and there's all these storylines. Anyhow, one of the guys in the character in the show, his name is Kevin, was trying to talk to these, his nieces about the meaning of life. I'm like, well, this will be interesting. And the only, he says, you know what? Because they said, well, do you believe in God? No, but here's the thing. I've discovered this, that we are all this intricate web of life. And, you know, when I die, you know, um, you'll still remember me because the stories of who I am will be in you. So I am still alive and I'll be alive forever because I live in you. And you will carry on and this web will just carry on and this is how... The, and, and so it was this big moment and everybody's crying, wow, what a meaning. And I just said to Karen, I said, this is nihilism. This is so depressing. Because if that's all there is, this is not... But it's, it's, it's trying to use the language of eternal life, but not being able to say it. And so all you're stuck with is that somehow, because you knew me, I'm somehow going to be with you as you continue living. But I think about, okay, two generations from now, we hit Ecclesiastes 1, meaningless, meaningless, 
everything. Because nobody's going to remember two generations away. Anyhow. Yeah, 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 yeah. One of one of the guys uh, put that up there. Yeah. Um, oh yes, a little mite. <laughs> not a little, but uh, the, the comment about uh, I'm going to bring that up. Uh, what was it called? Just look up. The show, just look yeah. up. Yeah, about the giant meteor. That was an in interesting movie. Yeah. The existentialist authors like James Joyce, Iris Murdoch, were the hit of the day. Yeah. And my thesis, when I had to do a thesis, thesis advisor, Dr. Fred Stockholder, an atheist Jewish professor, told me to read a book by Thomas Carlyle called Sartre Resortus. And this helped me actually take that leap. Uh, accepting Christianity. Interesting, okay. He said everyone has a need to have hope and purpose in life. We're all created with a, a God-sized hole in our hearts. Right. And it's the exact opposite of existentialism. You just exist, do right. your thing, you die, and that's it. Yeah, so my sister's talking about uh, the... Um, the uh, existentialism and that journey through existentialism to this to a place where you actually found God because this idea that every person inside of them has this need for hope. I think, yeah, there's something to that. And I think, I think sometimes as Christians, we're pretty quick to um, offer answers when people are, you know, bringing up questions about faith and meaning. And we're very quick to say, well, you know, Jesus says, I'm the truth, the life, and the way, and God does this. And, I think our strategy <laughs> needs to be more of, okay, this is what you believe. What are the implications of this? Like to talk to somebody who really does not believe in God or a meta-narrative or an overarching story and just say, what gives your life meaning? What if there is no meaning to life? I mean, that would be the implications. Why are you living as if there is meaning? Why not? Eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. I think that's one, and, and yeah. So, the biblical understanding of our personhood is huge. What does the Bible teach us? Well, it teaches us that we have dignity and value, that we are created, that we are created to uh, rule the created order as kings. Now, this is interesting. In the Bible, uh, it describes in Genesis that all human beings rule. Traditionally, in the ancient Near East, just the kings would rule. But in Genesis, all human beings are made in the image of God, and all human beings have this call to be stewards, good stewards over creation. We're all to be priests, to mediate. We are to service and keep the garden. That's the language of, of earth-keeping. And we are to live in the maintenance of these relationships, of an unbroken relationship with God, with one another, where the man and the woman were naked and unashamed and with the rest of creation. And when we live in unbroken communion with God, with each other, and with creation, what the Bible says is we experience shalom, peace. And this is a beautiful picture. 
except, except we have Genesis 3. If only we could stop at Genesis 2, we could say, all right, that's pretty good. But we have Genesis 3. And Genesis 3 is the cracks in creation because it describes the alienation that we experience. <laughs> I just realized the time. We got to get going here. Um, in the garden, because of human sin, because we would rather be God than to submit to God, we become alienated from one another. And you see that. A man and a woman. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. I will come. You know, just this deep intimacy. They stood naked before each other and felt no shame. And within one chapter, God says, where are you? He goes, did you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? He goes, this woman. I don't know her name. That you gave to me. <laughs> well, she, she, she gave me the... Uh, it wasn't me. She gave me the fruit. And the woman's like, thanks. Uh, well, no, it was this um, serpent that uh, he tricked me. And so everybody starts blaming. They have this pathetic attempt to cover themselves because there's broken communion between themselves and God, between one another. And then we read by the time you get to Genesis 9, that all the animals are, are fleeing in terror. The ground no longer cooperates. It's, it's, it's thistles and thorns. And uh, life is characterized by hard labor. And we return to dust and we die. And the violence, violence begins to escalate. You get the first murder very shortly after. And then you get the first guy who says, you know what, you mess with me, I'm going to take out... You know, you got a guy like Lamech who's boasting in his violence, right? So it just spins out of control. And the world tells, and the Bible tells us that there is deep damage to this world. But it doesn't take away from the fact that the world is still good. It's still God's good creation. And so we need to remember that the world is not a place from which we need to escape. And it's also not a place that we simply accept as it is. In Islam, Islam has the view that, um, that the natural world has already been subdued to Allah and the best thing to do is just let it be. Doesn't require much looking after. But no, the Bible says, no, we need to look after this world. We need to uh, be earth keepers. We need to participate in the taming of this world, but also in the loving and the stewarding of this world. Recognizing that this world that we live in is not a place that we master. We can't dominate this world. We can't rape and pollute it and treat it like a toilet. We're to um, earth keep and earth subdue. That's why I always say that Christians, Christians ought to be on the front foot when it comes to the environmental movement. Because this is our father's world. And we're not to treat it like a garbage dump. So it's not about, I don't think it's about global warming, climate change, or any of that. We're just supposed to take care of this world because this, this is our Father's world. And so we don't treat it like a dump. I was, uh, it was interesting, I was talking to somebody from a Christian environmentalist organization called Arosha. And he's talking about how the Christian worldview on the environment is starting to capture people's imaginations. Because they're discovering that 
no amount of teaching our, kill, our children to reduce, reuse, and recycle has made any difference. It's made no difference in terms of the, how we've treated the environment. It's, it's, it's as bad as it ever has been. And what, they, what people are discovering, though, that the only people who really where it makes a change is where there's a heart change. And that's usually connected to those who, who are Christian and view the world differently, view the earth differently from a Christian perspective. And, and the work of Arosha, this environment, Christian environmentalist organization, has even got the attention and the support of, um, of Margaret Atwood, who's you know, not, not a real friend of Christianity, if you read The Handmaid, what a Handmaid's Tale. Um, but apparently she's been, uh, her imagination's been captured by this, this organization because it deals with the issues of the heart and it deals with these fundamental stories of what is the nature of the world. So, just to conclude our time tonight, I want to look at one more thing. What time do we got? 8.20? 8.20? We're good? Agreed? Um, yeah. I want to look at one more implication for a biblical worldview of creation and the fall. I think that as Christians, we need to recover the doctrine of creation. And do you know why? We need to recover it for all the things that we talked about tonight, but one more reason. Um, we need to recover it because Christians often forget the doctrine of creation. In fact, Christians often neglect four chapters in the Bible. And they all have to do with creation. Christians will neglect chapters 1 and 2 in Genesis. And they will neglect the last two chapters in Revelation. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Genesis is about creation. The last two chapters of Revelation is about new creation. They're both about creation. And most people are stuck with telling the, the biblical story with Gen beginning in Genesis 3 and ending in Revelation 20. Well, Genesis 3 says, you know what? There's a lot of sin in this world and this world is broken. Revelation 20 is, and you're all going to go to hell. <laughs> and there's judgment. And the reality is, is most people already know this. If you talk to somebody in Starbucks and say, there's something wrong with the world, they're like, ah, thanks. That's so insightful. Right? And if you say, well, you know what? There's going to be consequences to how we live this world in this world. And we're like, well, no kidding. Look at the world. Look at the environment. Just look up. Right? Look at the meteor coming to hit, the, hit this earth. Um, of course there's going to be Of course there's going to be consequences to how we live our lives. Of course there's something wrong. Of course there's going to be consequences. How is this news to me? And so as Christians, what we need to do is need to step back and step forward and to recover this doctrine of creation. Because you know what the, what the doctrine of creation teaches us? This is really important. Is that God is a God, yes, who creates the world. That's good. But he also creates the world to be abundant. There, God is a God of abundance. Look at how many species, or how many beetles, types of beetles there are in the world. How many different viruses there are. Okay, that's all another God. Um, God is a God who is a God of abundance. Now, one of the things I took up 
during COVID. See, COVID hasn't all been bad. I took up gardening. I have no idea what I'm doing, but I garden. And one of the things that I've learned in gardening is that, and Sharon's taught me a lot of this, um, is that a lot of things can grow in really small areas. Like I decided to create a vegetable garden in my backyard. I have a small backyard. And I have these two plots of four by four. Oh, we had enough carrots to feed an army. We had enough tomatoes that just went on and on. And this is just a small little garden that's being expanded this summer. Um, but the amount of food that you can grow in a very small area is, is astounding. Anybody else here a gardener? Is this, I know sharing you, yeah, yeah. Am I right? Like, you, you, there's so much that can grow. And, and God created this world with so much abundance. So much abundance, there's so much power, there's so much energy in this world. And, and that is really important because that's captured in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, is that God is a God of abundance, and God is a God of shalom, and God is a God um, who creates so much power and energy in this world. And that's why people will say, you know what, don't have children because this world's going to hell and hand. There's too many people in this world. I'm like, you have no idea how much potential there is to grow food in this world. There's so much. It's just because these systems are broken and all sorts of greed and that's where things go wrong. But the way God has created this world has created the world with so much power and potential and abundance, right? So we need to remember that. And we need to remember that, especially as Christians. And let me talk about this one last implication. The implication of this is that there are implications to how, as Christians, we understand and talk about power. How does the world see power? As evil, yeah. How does power work in the world? Control, yeah. Corrupt, yeah. Money. Money, yeah. If I have power, ideally, the other person does not. If you are in an office and you give somebody the role of super supervisor, the implications is that they have power and the rest of the people don't. It's a zero-sum game. So we fight for power because, one, there's a scarcity of power. And that's how we look at creation. We think of there's a scarcity to resources. There's a scarcity, and so we need to control, we need to exploit, we need to manage, we need to control, because there's only so much around. But that's not God's picture. God's picture is abundance, not scarcity. It's an incredible abundance. And same with power. We look at power as like, if I have power, Mike, you don't. That's how it works. And if I have power, I'm going to make sure you don't have any power. But that's not a biblical view. The biblical view is that God has so much power, he creates this world with so much energy, and 
how we treat one another needs to mirror that. And so how we look at power needs to be very, very different as Christians. And it's too bad. The problem is, is as Christians, we fall into this idea that if I have power, you can't have power. Who's in charge here? I'm in charge, you're not. That kind of thing. But the Christian worldview of power is that that's expansive. It, it's, there's, it, it just grows. Let me give you an example. I'll give you two examples. One is um, when I came back from China, I uh, wanted to keep studying Mandarin. I was fairly conversant in Mandarin, um, Mandarin Chinese. And so I found a tutor in, in, um, on North Road, an older lady from Beijing, and I went to see her every week. And she would tutor me in, in, in Mandarin. And so every week I'd go there with 20 bucks in my pocket and I'd leave without $20. And uh, every, every week, she, who had more power of language than I did, she taught me Mandarin. And when I left, my understanding of Mandarin had increased. Did her understanding of Mandarin decrease as a result? No. In fact, she, by teaching me, she probably came to a deeper understanding of her own language. So she's empowering me, and she's growing, and I'm growing. And that's the Christian worldview. The Christian worldview is we need to empower one another. It's not, I, if you have power, I don't. It's, it, it expands. It grows. And one of my favorite pictures of this I have in your notes is a, it's a picture that I actually have in my, uh, in my home. I have, we we got, made a big poster of it. And it's uh, this famous painting from the uh, 19th century called the, uh, the Banjo Lesson. And I think that is such a beautiful... Do you guys see that on your notes? Do you have it in your notes? Um, I think it's such a beautiful picture of power. So let me ask you, just before we conclude, what do you notice in this picture that depicts a Christian view of power? What do you notice? There's a, a, there's a, describe just what you see. Yeah, a man teaching a boy. Do you think it's his dad? Do you think it's maybe a grandfather? Yeah, okay. What else? So a grandfather teaching a grandson how to play a banjo. What else do you notice? Say? He's his hands are off it, so the boy is learning it, and the boy is focused, yeah? Sharon? There's, yes, there's, there's a closeness that's, that's going on. There's an intimacy. There's a beautiful intimacy. Sharon? Sure. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Natalia pointed that out. Yeah, she's, he's, he's holding. He's actually holding the instrument and letting the boy try it. There's a master. We're all learning. Yeah. Yeah. And there's just this deep concentration. So it's a picture of this person who, as Phoebe, as you're saying, he's kind of hands off. And the boy is completely thinking that he is learning how to play the banjo, but the man is empowering him to do so by supporting him by sitting on the lap, there's that picture of intimacy and love and flourishing. And this comes out of the doctrine of creation, how we look at one another, how we understand power. So rather than 
seeing power as if I have power, you don't. It's my desire, if I'm going to reflect the character of God and in God's creative act, is to empower you to flourish. So if I have some power, if I have power, I use that to expand power, not to take away. It's a completely different way of looking at power in our world. And it has huge implications in terms of how we lead at work, how we lead those around us, is we don't look at people saying as, as our minions doing our bidding, but we look at them in a way where they are empowered. And think of a marriage. And, and Paul talks about this. Because the image of marriage is that you love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So it's this picture of sacrificial empowerment. And I love that. I just wanted to leave us with that because it is a picture of the way of Christ. Because even Christ, you know, with his disciples, he breathes on them. He empowers them. Uh, all authority has been given to me. And he says, go into the world and make disciples of all the nations. But don't worry, I will be with you to the very end of the age. Right? It's a beautiful picture of power. And I think as Christians, we often get power wrong. But the, the doctrine of creation and new creation teaches us a whole different way of seeing power. So that's a big implication that comes out of this. Does that make sense? Well, it's, yes, yeah, servant leadership in a, way, in a way, but it's so much more than that. It, it is servant leadership, but it's this the sense of, you know, I... Yeah, yes, because God in... in, in, in yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. That's good. <laughs> good luck. I mean, uh, yeah, that's, that's hard. But this idea in the Bible, what do we see God doing over and over again? Is he disadvantages himself to the advantage of others. That's the very character of God. And he makes this world with abundance. Lots of power. And so we don't have to wrestle and take power. And we see that as Christians. We need to get our man in Ottawa... Because we need to get back power so that we can, do, you know, it's just this, yeah, where the way of Christ is always this. It's, it's, it's this flourishing. Anyhow. Yeah, that's why Christianity, we are the body of Jesus together. We are created for one another. The essence and image of God. Oh, very good, Teresa. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Well, that's what I have for you tonight. So next week... What we're going to be exploring is we're going to be exploring the meaning of Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection. Because we think it's just about the gospel and we get to go to heaven. Oh, it's so much more than that. And it's, and it's going to fly against so many of the worldviews that we see floating around. And so that's what we're going to be exploring next week. And then the following week, we'll look at the end of time. End times and how that can also shape things. Lots of fun things we're going to be looking at. So let me uh, close our time in prayer, and then if you want to hang around, you can. I can even put on my headphones, I can hear you guys. But I'll close in prayer, and if you have to go, you have to go, that's okay. We've, we've gone just a little bit over time. Lord, thank you for your grace, thank you for your power, and help us to see power differently. Thank you for this good, good world that you have created. And help us to live in the implications of, this, of your creative work, not only for this world, but for our lives. That you give us an identity and a mission and help us to live our lives aligned to you. That's our desire. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for participating in this class. 
If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.